Welcome to Soccer 101, the podcast where we scratch the soccer riches you never knew you had. In our last episode, episode 90, we looked at the basic tenets of a well-run soccer club and brought up some examples. On this episode, we're doing the opposite. We're going to find out what constitutes a badly run team. Once again, we've determined criteria to judge how badly a team is run and maybe, just maybe, we'll even reach a consensus on the side that epitomises dysfunction, poor leadership, incompetence and corruption. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me to point that their finger today. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Good to talk to you, buddy. You too, pal. And Graham Rothman. Hello. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Graham. All right. Lots to discuss today. We should get straight to it. I think, gents, we're going to hear some team names crop up more than once, possibly, when we run through what constitutes a badly run team. Manchester United. <laughs> oh, excuse you, Graham. Excuse you. Uh, we're going to try and comprehensively look at some of the elements that ma- the elements, the elephants, the elements that make up a badly run Manchester United. I mean, a badly run club. So we're going to look at the uh, criteria here. The five that we have selected, listener. Uh, the first one is ownership. That's the owners, the folks ultimately responsible for making key decisions, as well as all the financial and leadership folly that therein follows. And then we're going to look at kind of the on-field attainment, how a club performs compared to how it's expected to perform at its level. So the expectation of success versus the reality of success. Our third category is management. That's the head coaches, the choices of those coaches, the turnover of coaches. Uh, Fourth category, recruitment and development. How well these teams manage to get quality players on the field and the right kind of players for them, of course. And the final category, just like it was last week, fan engagement. If your club cares about its official Japanese tomato juice sponsor more than the people in the seats at the stadium, they might be Manchester United. I mean, they might score poorly (laughs) here. All right. On that note, why don't we crack straight into category number one, Taylor Rockwell, ownership. This is probably the biggest category out there because, as we say, the owners are ultimately responsible for the key decision making. And it's their gosh darn club. Um, I'm going to hand the floor to you, Taylor. Who is your first nomination for a poorly owned club? See, now I'm just scared because I feel like I have to say Manchester United. But I'm not going to say Manchester United first, although I will probably say them at some point. Uh, I've got a couple nominations. I think a lot of the time in researching this one, it, the commonality, the common factors for me were the owner has no obvious connection to the city or the supporters. And there are exceptions to that. Leeds showed you could have an outsider and still have that connection. Uh, so that would be one thing. A disregard for standard operating procedures. Uh, immediate presumption that their way is better upon taking over and then running the club into the ground. And with that in mind, I would say Portsmouth comes to mind. And I would say Newcastle, at least under Mike Ashley, also comes to mind. Portsmouth obviously getting relegated, what, three times in three seasons or thereabouts and having owner after owner that was unable to stabilize the club. I think that is a big thing when the owner uh, doesn't have the funding or doesn't have the ability to correct a debt situation or gets them into a debt situation that they can then not correct. Right. Um, So we should probably make a distinction, Taylor, as well, about the nature of owners and Mm the make make a distinction between owners who are bad or who have bad things going against mm-hmm. them politically or otherwise yeah. and owners who are badly running their team so let's let's take psg for example mm-hmm. we can say what they say about um uh, psg and their owners and 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 soft power and so on but then they also are kind of running the team badly when you look at the objective of yeah. achieving champions league success so you could maybe put them in both categories uh, yeah, I definitely have them in a, a later category. But I think I think that is a thing that, honestly, you all had to help me with when we were sort of 
figuring out how to do this episode is that I found myself going down the rabbit hole of like uh, Owen Oyston, convicted rapist Owen Oyston, who was the former like owner and director of Blackpool. He and his son were convicted of illegitimate stripping of the club. He mm. is a terrible person. Then he and his son did bad things to hurt the club and put them into a bad financial situation. So like I would include him in the bad owners, but then there are the owners that I just have moral issues with Newcastle's current ownership, for example. Mm. But thus far, it seems like they are running the club effectively. So it's a weird thing where in my mind, you could have an owner that I don't necessarily agree with, but at the same time, they can still be a good owner. And there is a distinction there. I would say Lester is another good example of that. I did not realize, uh, I think I've been very few, in my praising of Lester's ownership, whereas in their native Thailand, I think they are seen as corrupt and yes. facilitating a, a regime that a lot of people do not enjoy. So I think there's always sort of two sides to the coin. And so it's looking at maybe which side deserves more attention for any number of reasons. Very good shout. And yeah, the Oysters is a good one to bring up, Taylor. Um, one of the all-time disliked owners in yeah. English soccer, I would suggest, at Blackpool. Uh, perhaps I'd put them on the line with uh, Roland de Chatelet, who was the owner at Charlton uh, before he was hounded out, who did things That's like... That's just a bad name. That's just a bad name. I immediately <laughs> thought of like the evil crusader from kingdom of heaven like it's a very similar name there i, I don't like it at all right he's like belgian i believe he owns standard liege or he owns a he owns a couple of belgian t- or at least one belgian team as well but he very very um very poor ownership of charlton um uh, did things like spent more money on range rovers than than players and things like that graham i come to you with a nomination for a bad ownership group yeah, so my first nomination is Barcelona. Now, I have to make a clarification here because when it comes to ownership, Barcelona are owned by the socios. You know, they're not owned by a, by a, a billionaire or, or a single entity even or a consortium. They're owned by their fans. So that's maybe a clarification I make with Barcelona. But if, if financial mismanagement falls into this category, then I think it would be remiss of us not to mention at some point Barcelona in, in the modern age of of soccer, this is, after all, a club that amassed debts of 1.35 billion euros over a number of years to the point that Barcelona's survival as a club couldn't be counted on last summer. It was a, a pretty perilous situation that they were they were in, and it resulted in the, the exit of several important players. Almost every player in the squad that did stay took a, a major pay cut. New signings couldn't be registered with La Liga until that happened. And, of course, most notably, Lionel Messi was, was forced out of the club and uh, Barcelona were so far above their salary allowance in La Liga at that time that Messi couldn't even have played for half his half his salary um, at that point. So um, Messi's departure from Barcelona will always be linked to the mismanagement that happened under Sandro Rossell and then most notably under Josep Bartomeu uh, as, the, as the club presidents there. And a, a key part of what went wrong for Barcelona is just that they, they spent well beyond their means. Um, they got wrapped up, wrapped up in this transfer market arms race with Real Madrid. They spent huge amounts of money on Usman Dembele and Philip Coutinho in back-to-back windows. But the real damage was done in the huge contracts that they handed out to, to players who weren't Messi, Suarez and Neymar. What I'm getting at there is maybe players who didn't deserve huge contracts. So I'm just going to run through some, some names and the weekly wage that they were getting until last summer when a lot of the pay cuts happened. Sergio Busquets, 423,000 euros a week, Frankie de Jong 306,000 euros a week Ansu Fati, a teenager 
€250,000 a week. Samuel Mtiti, who's barely played for about three years, €240,000 a week. And then Antoine Griezmann was on an astonishing €800,000 a week. And that was maybe at the height of when this transfer market arms race was happening, when Barcelona were just signing big names for the sake of it. And with these sort of figures, you get an idea of where things went so badly wrong for them. Barcelona do seem to be doing, they're certainly doing better on the pitch now. They are doing slightly better off the pitch as well. But a lot of it is down to loans that they have struck with Goldman Sachs. They're redeveloping the the camp now. So I, I wouldn't say we'll know where they are as a club for a few more years yet. It seems like they've kind of kicked the can down the road. And this is a situation they're very much still in. Graham. Let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Is there a case mm-hmm. to be made that their owners have done a good thing in getting them out of the tremendous hole they've been in? And if they continue at the current trends of scoring four goals every game, as they do, um, we're going to kind of forget about this massive incompetence they showed financially over the past few years. Or do you think that, that, they, that you know, that's going to come back and haunt them a little bit more? I don't think we're going to forget about it purely just from the fact that they lost Lionel Messi, who was a player who should have retired at Barcelona, the greatest player in their history. I also don't give... So, of course, the the, the distinction here is Juan Laporte has come back in as president. He isn't an owner. He's he's the president. As I say, the club is owned by the fans. But he, for all intents and purposes, he's maybe as close as you can get to an owner in Barcelona's case. So he's come in. He's a slightly different owner to the... or different uh, leader to the last regime. And I'm not really giving Barcelona that much credit for getting themselves out the hole when they did everything they could to dig that hole for themselves in the first place. (laughs) Um, And they could have just kind of stayed at the elite level for a long time without having to to dig themselves out of this situation. Fair enough. I think think for me that, that like Barcelona shows, and I think a lot of Premier League clubs show, is that... A big strike against ownership, against the people who make the decisions to me, would be clubs that have no business being in difficult financial situations and yet find themselves in exactly such situations. That, like, when you're buying a Premier League club, and I think this is what happened to Portsmouth, it happened, it's happened to a number of other ones, you become reliant on that income because there is just so much money to be had. And I think that's the case with Barcelona, when you can just kind of print money you start to assume that you will always be able to do that. And I think looking at the way the Premier League is structured, uh, like uh, if you finish 17th last year, so Burnley, their prize money because of the TV rights was over a hundred million pounds. Like you can stay financially solvent even if you don't have that much money from your owner. And I do think that is also a distinction for me when it comes to the ownership is if you have an owner who's coming in and either investing in the club or letting the revenue generated fuel the club, I think that is an ideal owner. Uh, if you have the owner who's coming in to run it like a business and make profits and pull money out of the club and not necessarily seeing it as developing this asset but stripping the asset, again, that's where I have some issues with owners. Well, that leads us nicely, Taylor, mm-hmm. to a club in Manchester, does it not? Manchester um, City? Let's talk about Man City? Let's do it. Let's not talk about Man City just yet. Let's talk about Manchester United. Right. Um, you, you can make a case they have absentee owners who uh, treat the club like a cash cow. The stadium mm-hmm. is a crumbling mess by all accounts. Um, You know, some horrible mismanagement in terms of personnel who's been brought in. Uh, All a bit haphazard at Manchester United, isn't it? And, you know, this is a team, lest we forget, who have a spin-off club. Uh, FC United Manchester started many years ago in protest at the Glazers' ownership. Yeah, I mean, really, if we're looking at our five categories today, they they pretty much tick every single box, which was a... Not fun thing to realize as a Manchester United fan, but yes, they've got issues with ownership, with their financial stability. 
they don't always do the best with recruitment and with how much they're spending. The results don't always back that up. Had a number of different managers not doing as well on the recruitment side, like I said. Uh, supporters blocking the team from leaving the hotel to get to games because they're so frustrated with the way things are going. Yeah, I would say there's a good argument that Manchester United is one of the worst-run clubs in the world, which is an odd thing to say about one of the largest clubs in the world. Mm. More yeah, on them shortly. Graham? I was just going to say, if we're talking about ownership and financial stability, the thing with Manchester United that sticks in the throat for me, and I, I, I can't imagine how it feels for you, Taylor, is the fact that Manchester United had been debt-free up until the Glazers uh, proceeded with a leverage takeover where they used the assets of Manchester United to secure the loan they needed to buy Manchester United, then loaded £500 million worth of debt on Manchester United, and to this date, have ta- uh, uh, the, the Glazers' ownership has cost Manchester United over a billion pounds of interest repayments. That money has gone to the bank. It's not gone anywhere. So while Manchester City have spent a billion pounds on transfers, Manchester United have spent a billion pounds in that same time on the Glazers being their owners. That is scandalous. They've like, also spent a billion pounds scandalous. on transfers, so there's that. <laughs> like, that- it's, it's not great. It's not great the way they're spending. But yeah, I, Graham, that's exactly... The, the the point for me is like that is the sort of under the radar worst type of ownership. And I think like we we've you could talk about like war criminals and people who have gone to prison. I would say those are probably the actual worst type of owners. But there's the owner who piles debt on the club, clearly just sees it as an asset in the portfolio to sell on down the road. I did not love that one scene in succession, how accurately they seem to summarize the idea of like buy a club then when there's like the super league we'll make a billion dollars and sell them on that does seem to be the kind of prevailing way that some people choose to operate their teams and i think manchester united never made sense to me that they were able to i guess trigger the financial mechanisms they did to then be able to lump all that debt onto the club and yeah and then not run them pretty very effectively not really have any sort of organizational structure continue to prioritize the commercial side of things I would say there's a good argument for the Glazers not being the best owners in the league Um but Graham if we take a holistic view um the organization did win the Super Bowl last year so it's all good right Of course yeah my yeah. United fans should be happy with that yeah Excellent. what more do you expect <laughs> I expect nothing less. Uh, before we move on from this category, Graham, any other teams you'd like to nominate for bad owners? Yeah, so I'm going to head to Spain again, and I'm going to nominate Valencia, who are traditionally a Spanish football powerhouse. They won the La Liga title as recently as 2004, and then financial troubles hit, and they've never really uh, recovered from that point. So by 2008, Valencia's debt was close to half a billion euros. Um, that didn't include the hundreds of millions they had borrowed to start the construction of a new stadium. Construction of that stadium was then abandoned. It still lies to this day as a, as a shell. Um, it's just, it's in a state of, of construction. I'm not sure. I did read something recently that said that maybe they were going to start up again, but I'm, I'm not aware of that happening, um, right now. Valencia were forced to sell a number of, of, uh, their best players on the cheap, which was per- particularly painful for a club that has done such a good job over the years of bringing th- players through and developing players. So, Players that they sold for, you would say, under market value at that time uh, included David Villa, Raul Albiol, David Silva, Juan Mata, Joaquin, Jordi Alba. And then Valencia's story actually gets worse because just as it seems like they might get out of this nightmare with Peter Lim taking over in 2014, their debt continues to mount. So Valencia currently have 400 million euros worth of, of debt under Peter Lim. 
um, despite them wi- him wiping that debt when he first took over in 2014. And then uh, last year, or whenever the, the COVID pandemic hit, Valencia were so badly affected by that that they had to sell Ferran Torres, Rodrigo, Francis Coughlin, Jeffrey Condogbia, Danny Parejo. So it feels like every time Valencia builds something up and build a team, there's a financial crisis that hits them and they have to completely clear the decks. And, and that has just affected um, all areas of the club. They never really have been able to build anything since Rafa Benitez won that La Liga title back in 2004. Graham, I have a, a question for you about an entirely different club. But mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you, in, in doing the research for this episode and for this category in particular, like... I guess the only way I can put this is that I think sometimes there's this idea that, like, okay, it's billionaires who own these clubs. It's very well-paid people who are coming in and making these decisions and figuring out the finances. And I guess my question for you, my first question is, like, do you agree with that? Or do you feel like in reading about this that there tends to be more of, like, no, it's just kind of a business. And in any business, you can have people who don't quite know what they're doing. Because I look at some of these deals and the way clubs operate, and it does feel very much like – Many of the decisions, many of the financial decisions for at least a few of these teams are, yeah, we'll figure that out down the road. But we got five years to figure that out. And if you're Barcelona, you keep putting it off for five years and then eventually it all kind of hits at the same time. I just I'm struck by how often it seems like owners come in and think, I know how to do this. I run a business. I can make things happen. And then they hire people who also seem to think that they exclusively know how to make things happen. And in the end, you have financial ruin or at the very least financial confusion. Yeah, well, the thing I come back to in responding to that question is if you're a very successful and wealthy business person, is is buying a football club really a, a sound way of making money? Nope. It seems like there's a lot of risk involved. There are some exceptions, of course. It seems like Fenway Sports Group, their whole mm-hmm. their whole business, their whole company is around owning sports teams. So maybe they've got slightly better expertise in that area. But as I say, if you're if you're uh, you've made your millions in another business, I, I feel like. There might be other industries that you could invest in that would make you a quicker buck than uh, than European soccer or a soccer team in general. That that in- does make a lot of sense. The other question I had for you, Graham, would you have put Rangers on this list at any point in the recent future? Yeah, a recent past, yeah, that, that's that's entirely fair. So Rangers for uh, a long time certainly would have been on this list of course they suffered financial meltdown in in 2011 and that had been coming for a number of of years decades even going back to David Murray who was the owner of Rangers for a long time basically he spent to a point where that was just completely unsustainable for Rangers they signed Paul Gascoigne, uh, Paul Gascoigne, Michael Loudrop, the De Boer, De Boer brothers played for Rangers for a while and they were just on on massive wages there was a point in the 90s where Rangers had one of the biggest wage bills in in European football and what happened was they used a, a tax scheme called EBTs to pay these players more than was legal. Then HMRC, which is the tax agency in the UK, they uh, called up one day and said, oh, we found out that you owe us all this money, all these millions, and Rangers just couldn't afford to, to pay that. So they, they went to, they went into liquidation in 2011, got demoted down to the bottom tier of Scottish football, have now got better owners that have brought them back up, won the league title last season. So maybe that's why I wouldn't put them in at, at this point in particular, because they're, they're going well in the Europa League this season. They do seem to be on an even keel again they'll probably make some money from from transfers and follow the Celtic model in the years to come. But yes, absolutely. Over the last 20 years, Rangers are definitely in this category. 
Let us move on to the second category, gents, which was the expectation of success versus the reality of success for teams, the on-field attainment, if you will. And Taylor, for me, the poster boys (laughs) for this category are Newcastle United and specifically the Mike Ashley era Newcastle United. Let's let's not talk about the Saudi Arabian era just now. But I, I have maintained that Newcastle are the biggest underachievers in world soccer. For a team that size who had a billionaire owner, who have they're a one a one town club, a one team club, and one town team, you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's one team team in that town, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and to have a massive loyal fan base, and to not not only have not won any silverware at all, but to have been relegated a couple of times, it's. It's tremendously embarrassing. It's almost disgusting for those fans, the lack of success they've had compared to what they should have with the building blocks they have, Taylor. The the only thing that is maybe even more disgusting is that I sort of disagree with you because I'm not sure anyone ever had expectations under Mike Ashley that they were going to achieve great things. Well, At they least, should. I guess early on, in the very beginning, maybe they did when he came in and said all the right things and got drunk in pubs locally and it felt like, oh, Kevin Keegan's coming back. It's all going to be fine. But I think since then, it has been the opposite of fine. And so, yeah, like that's a good example of an owner who... Uh, for being in the Premier League, they have so much money. They have that profile. They, I remember years ago when it was just the Big Four, and there was a whole conversation about will Newcastle be the next entry into the Big Four, mm. making it a Big Five because they have all of these things going for them: the stadium, the location, or at least like the the one club sort of uh, approach, the history, and everything. One and down. yet here they are getting relegated <laughs> twice—a thing that. Lest we forget, when they got relegated that first time, it felt like a thing that was never going to happen. They were too big to go down. So in a lot of ways, yeah, Ryan, I guess there is a pretty strong argument for Newcastle. It's just weird to also say, yeah, but did we ever think they were going to win the Premier League? I'm not sure I did. Their, their, their underachievement also predates Mike Ashley. So before yeah. Ashley, they obviously had Sir John Hall, who was the, the millionaire owner from the Northeast, spent a bit of money. Yes, uh, Keegan's team in the late 90s played some brilliant football, but never... Never won a title. They made an FA Cup final in 1999, I think. Uh, didn't win a trophy then. Made, uh, qualified for the Champions League in the early 2000s. So you could say they, they had some success, but in terms of tangible success, it was always that final step. And it, and it, it, it just never happened. So even before Mike Ashley, I'd say Newcastle had, had, uh, have underachieved re- related to the, the size of, and stature of that club. Yeah, he just continued the legacy, arguably. And still, I, I, I still am baffled by it. The, the lack of success they've had on the field, given the uh, the uh, elements they have in at their disposal. Graham, who else can we put in this category? So there may be another obvious Premier League name that I, I might uh, leave to our friend, Mr. Rotwell. Uh, he, he might know it better than the two of us. But I'm actually going to head to Germany for a nomination. Um, okay. I was trying to think slightly outside the box. I'm going to nominate Hertha Berlin who um, there's some historical context to, to their nom- nomination and also a modern context. So traditionally, Hertha Berlin aren't a very successful club in, in German soccer. They haven't been German champions since the 1930s. They haven't won the DFB Pokal since the early 90s. And this is despite having one of the, the biggest fan bases in terms of numbers in, in Germany. Obviously, they are from uh, Berlin, the biggest city in Germany, the capital city in, in, in Germany. And then you look to um, their recent history. They were bought by Lars Windhorst, who is one of the, the richest men in Germany in 2019. They've spent quite a bit of money recently. They, they signed Piantek, the, 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 the former AC Milan striker, the Polish striker, Matthias Cunha, Lucas Tussart from Lyon as well. They all arrived. Jurgen Klinsmann, who, uh, believe it or not, in Germany still has a, 
a, a decent reputation as a coach. He was he was hired as as I manager. <laughs> and yeah, uh, Hertha have just slid closer and closer to relegation season after season. Right now, they're in the relegation playoff place. Recently, they were second bottom of the table. That's actually an improvement on their recent form. Um, they've been dismal all season. And if Hertha go down, it will be, even considering how a, a number of big clubs in German soccer have gone down to, to, the, to the, the second tier, um, Hertha's case will be one of the, the biggest cases of underachievement ever seen in, in German football for me, given yeah. the recent context of the takeover and the money that they have. It's, it's quite incredible that they are in the position that they are in. That, that's a really good show, actually. And Germany is quite regionalized in terms of its power sources. You know how we've said before how, you know, the biggest teams tend to be in the biggest cities. So there are, it's a bit spread out in Germany, but you're quite right, Graham. It being the capital and, and it being a huge team who played in the Olympiastadion, a massive yep. stadium where the World Cup final was held. And to, to be, to underachieve as they do is, is quite baffling. You're quite right there. Um, Taylor, where should we go next? Uh, probably back to England for a moment. We can talk Man United. I would ask you both. Is there an argument for Tottenham being on this list? Recently, yes. Maybe not traditionally in my kind of formative years. I always thought yeah. of ta- Tottenham when I was in the early 2000s, which is when I really got into football. I, I would say Tottenham were a kind of Aston Villa at, at this point. Mid-table. Whereas then, yeah, whereas Tottenham recently have become a, a, a member of the big six. And yes, they haven't really had the tangible success to justify that position in the top six, yeah. I would say. I would argue they've even, um, you know, outkicked their coverage, so to speak, Taylor, and, and ro- ro- risen to a higher level than they might yeah. be expected. There you go. Um, I would I would also maybe include in my, like, dishonorable mention, possibly Roma, for reasons I think we've talked previously, for having the importance of the city, the size of the supporters group. You would expect them to have won a few more titles than they have. Mm. But Manchester United would be... The obvious one to mention here. We're going to mention them in every category, I suspect. <laughs> but for how much they've spent, for the position of stability they had for so long, for them to have managerial turnover, we'll talk more about that. For them to have had such erratic recruitment, we'll talk more about that. And then to have had such erratic results, both in terms of playing style and approach, but also just actual results and where they finished in the table sort of being a throw a dart at the table and maybe that's where they're going to finish because it's about as uh, random as that in my mind. I think there's a good argument for their uh, unevenness of their performance since Sir Alex Ferguson stepped down uh, slash retired slash sat angrily in the stands every single game uh, that I think that, yeah, they could be on this list too. Totally fair. Um, Graham, a name that strikes me here as well, PSG, um, you know, didn't even win the French league last year and yeah. have their sights set on the Champions League and so have lost sailed with a virtually unlimited budget with all the pomp, with, with all the merchandise, with everything around them, all the world's best players. Surely they belong on this list too. Yep, so PSG are going are gonna to crop up in one of my nominations in a, in, a, in a later category, but I think you're absolutely spot on, particularly when you consider they, they didn't win the league on title last season, which I often forget that happened, to be perfectly honest. I, 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 like Leo winning that title just feels like such a glitch that, um, yeah, sometimes I, I overlook that that actually happened, but incredible, <laughs> incredible underachievement. All right, we're looking at the elements of the worst run clubs. Taylor Rockwell, anything more in this category before we take a little break and we calm you down because we've mentioned Man United so much? <laughs> uh, no, I've got more, more thoughts on PSG, but I think similar to Graham. We'll talk about them later as well. Excellent stuff. Quick break, folks. We'll be back shortly. Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN, who would like to remind you that if you're not using a VPN to check out what Netflix, for example, has on offer, you are missing out. 
a quick perusal of the movie and television offerings on the various Netflix services in many different countries shockingly reveals that the United States is falling behind, folks. We are falling behind when it comes to the availability of television and movies. I doubt that's true. But the United Kingdom has like 500 more movies than we do available on Netflix. Latvia has like 300 more movies than the U.S. Ireland is way up there as well. Plenty of countries with lots of different movies and TV series for you to check out. But you have to be in that country unless you're using a VPN. And with ExpressVPN, you can gain access to all of those different libraries. Uh, The UK one, I think, has every single episode of Doctor Who, for example. But you don't experience that loss in quality. It still comes through crystal clear, and it's very easy to use. Our own Graham Ruffin used a VPN to watch the USA-Mexico game. The Mexico-USA game, I should say. Uh, He found it really easy to use. The quality was good, and so far, so good, which is about the highest level of praise I think Graham is capable of offering. And with ExpressVPN, you're getting blazing fast speeds, you're getting compatibility with all your devices, be it phone, laptop, media console, smart TV, and more, servers in 94 different countries, and it works with other streaming services like BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and many more. Get you some match of the day in there. So be smart, stop paying full price for streaming services, and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash soccer. Don't forget to use our link at expressvpn.com slash soccer to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Thank you to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's show and being a well-run company, unlike the clubs we are now about to talk about again. Welcome back to Soccer 101. We are talking about the worst run clubs in soccer and what makes them the worst run clubs. Our next category is management, Graham Rutherford. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a tricky one, I think, uh, because we could look at several elements of management, like the turnover of managers, the quality of managers, and so on. Let, I'll get the ball rolling with one I'm not sure about, Watford, because okay. of the sheer turnover of managers they have, because they get through several a season. But then you can flip the coin and say, kind of works for them in a way. It it does to a certain extent, but I, I do think that narrative kind of gets overplayed because it feels like Watford get relegated every second season, so it doesn't yeah. work that well for them. <laughs> um, obviously, in terms of getting into the Premier League, maybe that is their their ceiling. But yeah, they when you look at like what Burnley have done with sticking with Sean Dyche, yeah. you'd say similar size clubs, and Burnley are much more effective at staying in the Premier League. So I I get what you're saying, but I'm just offering up a counterpoint as well. Yeah, totally fair. Taylor, where, where should we go with this one? Management. Uh, we will go to an extended analogy for a moment. So buckle up for that one, because I think it applies to both management and recruitment. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine about Manchester United, and here's the analogy I came up with. If you Think of it as, uh, Graham, I think you've said previously, you know how to make a good spaghetti bolognese. And I think it's when you learn, when a person learns how to make a recipe, it's because you've made it over and over and over again, and you sort of learn how to make it without looking at the recipe, but you learn how to adapt it and how to add like different ingredients to spice it up or whatever you might want to do. And that way, if somebody throws a random ingredient at Graham, he, he is more likely to be able to figure out how to incorporate that into the meal because he has such familiarity with everything else. Jelly. And I think... Kebab. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Graham did it. Uh, you're going to add keb- kebab to <laughs> the sauce and make it like a Middle Eastern spaghetti, and then you're going to add the jelly to something for dessert. Boom. Done. See? <laughs> Solved. But when... 
you have like Graham is making a recipe and then decides, you know what? I'm going to change it up. I'm going to make something entirely different. I'm going to keep the same base ingredients, but I'm going to make them different. And then actually, you know what? Instead of making Thai food, I'm going to make Italian food. Actually, instead of Italian food, I'm going to make Chinese food. And if you keep changing it, but also kind of keeping it the same, you end up with this monstrosity that isn't necessarily going to taste good, but will have been very expensive to assemble. And I think that is the difference between a well-run club when it comes to managers and and uh, and also when it comes Good to analogy. recruitment. I like that one. Yeah. And so I look at uh, when it comes to... Uh, yes. <laughs> Manchester United, where you have Ferguson sort of playing a, attacking expansive soccer of that era. Uh, then you get David Moyes. I still would struggle to classify what exactly he wanted Man United to do. Then you have Louis van Gaal, who has his own style. Then you have Jose Mourinho, who has his own style. Then Ole. And uh, now Ralph Rangnick and whoever comes next. And it's all chopping and changing but you're keeping a lot of the same players a lot of the same ingredients and kind of expecting them to be this great dish that's a bunch of different things and we call it fusion but in actuality it's a bunch of disparate parts and when you have those kind of that managerial change that's where I think you can run into some problems and that's where I would almost differentiate them from a club like Watford Ryan because Strangely, when there's an expectation of managerial turnover or it is going to just be totally different, that is kind of the expectation when the expectation is, no, we're this huge club with stability and we're going to build for the future. And then that's not at all what's happening. That stands in even more stark contrast. So I think anytime there's that level of change between management and it doesn't really have any connectivity, I think that is always a warning sign. And then the ultimate warning sign would be something like Atletico Madrid under Jesus Gil, uh, who fired, I believe, 39 managers in his 16 to 17 years in charge of that club. That would be another way you could go, which is just a temperamental owner who uh, sacked managers on a whim. Nice. <laughs> uh, Graham, are there any Premier League teams out there who've got, say, a current um, manager who was an England midfielder <laughs> who um, who aren't doing so well in terms of their recruitment of managers at the moment? Yeah, so I don't think you're talking about Aston Villa, who actually are doing quite well. One. So I'm going to go to the other, uh, the other England midfielder. Yeah, Everton, Frank Lampard's Everton. And I think they have to be... Um, they have to be mentioned as one of the worst run clubs in general in the Premier League right now, but I stuck them in this category for their, their managerial record. Um, since David Moyes left the club in 2013, Everton have gone through no fewer than seven permanent managers, and that's not even accounting for, accounting for the, the caretaker spells uh, for David Unsworth and Duncan Ferguson, who have both had two uh, caretaker spells as manager. Goodness. And similar to what Taylor was saying there about the the managerial whiplash, I would call it. Um, Everton have they've they've gone through different types of managers without a common thread of of uh, anything to link them. So after Moyes, they go for uh, Martinez, Roberto Martinez. There is some, I guess, some philo- philosophical continuity in going for Coleman after that. But after him comes Sam Allardyce. That's quite a quite a big departure. Then Allardyce, it's Marco Silva. Then it's Carlo Ancelotti. Then it's Rafael Benitez, a former Liverpool manager, we should mention, so not ideal for Everton. And now Frank Lampard. And there is almost nothing to link all those all those managers. And Everton have no idea what sort of team they are, um, what sort of team they want to be. And that is reflected by the managers that they have appointed over the, over the last few years. Good nomination, Graham. Uh, Taylor, who else can we put in this category? For uh, management issues? Yeah. I mean, probably PSG again. Like, that, that's another one where you have sort of high expectations for a manager coming in. And then if they don't live up to them, 
And when we say high expectations, we mean winning the league in emphatic style and like playing beautiful, free-flowing, attacking football with 19 different attackers, but then also winning the Champions League. Not No manager for PSG has been able to do that. And you look at the caliber that have rolled through there and been sacked or about to be sacked in Mauricio Pochettino's case. I think it's telling that all of that talent hasn't found a way to have success. And then Carlo Ancelotti, since his time at PSG, has done just fine. Thomas Ducal leaves them last season, goes to Chelsea. That worked out okay. <laughs> I, I, so I don't think it's it's a problem of they keep getting the manager wrong, but maybe the people making the decisions ahead of the manager might have some issues that they need to work out. Yes, that might be the case, T. Um, Graham, anyone else for management? Yep, quick nomination for Sunderland. Um, as recently as 2017, they were a Premier League club. Since then, they've fallen all the way down to League... I uh, almost said League 1. That would have been quite <laughs> quite a transition it's there. It's a very for, fancy for way them. of saying it. Yeah, League 1 in England, as it is known. Um, they've had sketchy owners, and there's been fan protests and a bad transfer policy, but perhaps the most notable thing has been their managerial track record. Since 2015, they've gone through... 10 permanent managers, Gus Poyet, Dick Advocat, which I'd completely forgotten about that that had happened, Sam Allardyce, David Moyes, Simon Grayson, Chris Coleman, Jack Ross, Phil Parkinson, Lee Johnson, and now Alex Neal, who was appointed fairly recently. And anyone who has watched the Sunderland Till I Die docuseries on Netflix, which I know Taylor has watched, um, will know just how dysfunctional that club is behind the scenes. And it's perhaps not surprising that they have that track record. Is it it also a a damning mark on them, Graham, that they allowed us to see that? Like their owners and their management allowed us to see their car crash unfolding? Yeah, and not only that. So, so Jack Ross was actually on because he's a Scottish manager. He was on the he was in the the media up here a couple of weeks ago. He's out of a job currently. He was saying that he was a manager during that time when that that docu series was happening. He didn't know anything about it. He turned up (laughs) for preseason, and the Netflix cameras were there in the dressing room following everything. So, again, another sign of a poorly run club. Communication is key. That That is insane that he didn't know that. And it didn't really do him many favors, that documentary. So I'm guessing no. he does not love it all that much. Now, now that we've mentioned it, I feel like Newcastle also can probably uh, be mentioned here. Because they have run through some managers under Mike Ashley. Obviously, the expectation is that will change under new owners. But Steve Bruce, Rafa Benitez, Steve McLaren, John Carver, Alan Pardew, Chris Hutton, Alan Shearer, Chris Hutton again, Joe Kinnear, Chris Hutton before him, Kevin Keegan before him. A lot of kind of repetition of names, a lot of them not given much time. <laughs> and in the case of two of those uh, managers, like club legends um, and Kevin Keegan and Alan Shearer. Alan Shearer promised, even though they were relegated, he's a new manager. He's figuring it out. We're going to give you time. And then they sack him and don't bring him back. And uh, I think now he is a vocal critic of Mike Ashley when he was in mm. charge of Newcastle. And I, I, I think that is a, a big one for me is when you're like feuding with club legends or people who have strong standing with the club. And then at the same time, bringing in someone like Joe Kinnear, who I believe, him say, believe I'm correct in saying when he was appointed, hadn't worked in several years and was seen as a sort of backwards appointment, probably a cost-effective appointment. And so maybe when the owner is hiring managers not with a view towards what could happen down the line, what they could build, what they could develop, but we got to save some money, so let's get this guy in and hope it works out. That's probably not a recipe for success either. Yeah. That was uh, that was part of the Cockney Mafia, wasn't it, Graham? It was yeah. Dennis Wise who had links to Joe Kinnear via Wimbledon who brought in Joe Kinnear. I forgot about that. Yeah. I, I, with Joe Kinnear, I think Mike Ashley basically brought him in to swear at the media. Is oh, essentially yep. what... <laughs> Dropping C-bombs everywhere. Yeah. He was uh, Johan Kebab too, right? 
Wasn't that wasn't the, that Jokinir? Was that was that uh, one of the other nonsense no. managers? Oh, who was I that? I can't remember. <laughs> Good moment though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it wasn't Robbie uh, Robson, was it? Maybe. I can't remember. I thought, anyway. but either way, for people who don't remember that one, including us, uh, it was when Johan Kabaye was listed as Johan Kebab on the team no, sheet. I think that might <laughs> be joking. Uh, two, two things, Taylor. A, a good nomination for Newcastle there. One, uh, lest we forget Alan Pardew's eight-year contract that yeah. he got during that yeah. as well. Eight years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Years. And the other thing, um, Joe Kinnear is the only manager who has told my brother to F off and support someone else then when he had to go <laughs> at him from the stands. <laughs> Remains a record. Oh, that's a good. Your brother's had some run-ins with some people, man. Yeah, he's a bit more fiery than I am. Shall we move on <laughs> to the next category? Uh, category four: recruitment and development. Okay. Um, Graham, when I go to this category, one name springs to mind for me, uh, and it maybe um, shows a combination of um, poor recruitment and maybe poor management from upstairs. It's from Memeless into Miami who were fined $2 million last year when the league determined they violated (laughs) roster designation rules for Blaise Matuidi and Andre Reyes. You ain't cheating, Um, you ain't trying, Ryan. If you ain't cheating, you you ain't trying. Yeah, their sporting director, Paul McDonald, was uh, was, uh, dismissed uh, from this incident and they basically, they didn't categorize their players correctly. They didn't read the rules, Graham? (laughs) I mean, they are complicated. Uh, so I have some sympathy there. Does anyone in MLS read the rules, I guess? As, as the people are say. paid to, I imagine, do. That's true, yeah. If you're paid to read the rules, maybe, yeah, read the rules in that case. <laughs> I really yeah. appreciate that they went the, the Dave Chappelle route of the almost the MLS equivalent of, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know I couldn't do that, and then cross their <laughs> fingers and hope that would work out. <laughs> Taylor, who else you got in this category? Uh, another MLS uh, team, former MLS slash recreated MLS, would be Chivas USA. There is a great piece uh, by Pablo Mar and Sam Stachel that was out on The Athletic, I think a few years ago at this point. But it's the, the kind of the history, I think it's called the fall and fall of Chivas USA. And for the way they established themselves as sort of reflecting Chivas de Guadalajara's mission of only signing Mexican players and being kind of true to their Mexican heritage... That seems to have been a very erratic mission with Chivas USA, where sometimes that was going to be prioritized, sometimes it was not. Uh, And when it was going to be prioritized, there were promises of you can have three senior players from Chivas uh, de Guadalajara. I think two or three different Chivas USA managers were promised that, and then that fell through. There's a famous story of Preki going down to scout Chivas players, and he's given sort of a couple different tiers of player that he can choose from. He sees one guy who's uh, like, seems like he's pretty skillful. Seems like he can score some goals points to him and says, I want to sign that guy. And even though he's not playing, even though he's not getting any first team minutes, they say, no, no, uh, you can't have him. And they send him to a different field where there's even lower down the totem pole, like rejected players, none of whom Preki ends up wanting. And the player that he had spotlighted was Javier Hernandez, who moves on 18 months later. So there's this weird, like promising players, pulling those players back, and essentially Chivas USA becomes treated as a reserve team for Chivas de Guadalajara. They also had this idea that it would pull uh, all of the like the local Mexican-American community in in Los Angeles to support Chivas over the galaxy, forgetting that a lot of that Mexican-American population had loyalties to Mexican clubs who hate Chivas de Guadalajara. So they don't get the fan support. They don't get the players that they said they would. They start prioritizing... Uh, under Bob Bradley, signing more American players. That's when they have their biggest period of success is when there's sort of a hybrid of the two approaches. 
But then they go back to only kind of focusing on Mexican-American talent. They end up getting hit with a discrimination lawsuit for that that they settle out of court uh, for the way they conducted their academies and recruitment and hiring and firing. And I would say overall, Chivas USA, a good, good example of what not to do when it comes to MLS and recruitment and development. Oh boy, that was exhausting just listening to all that. Taylor. Yeah, my little goodness. Bit, little bit. My goodness. Uh, speaking of exhausting and banging the drum, Taylor, I have to come back to Man United oh, on good. this category. Um, <laughs> the team that has had quite a good youth policy uh-huh. in in decades past, the class of 92, mm-hmm. being a more recent example, um, who have gone on to spend outrageous amounts of money on players who don't fit any kind of system, who don't seem to, there's no ideology behind their recruitment. Um, you know, Paul Pogba being brought in at top dollar, a player who who was let go for free by Manchester United. Oh, was he? And when he was originally recruited from Le Havre, who I think were mentioned on this show last week, in mm-hmm. fact, uh, they got in a lot of legal trouble doing that as well. So it just seems like things aren't too rosy in terms of recruitment at Old oh, Trafford. No? Oh, have no. things taken a turn? Uh, yes, I would say the net spend of over a billion dollars would would point to that being the case. Uh, lots of money spent, not a lot of money going the other way. In fact, looking at Manchester United and their acquisitions from a just from transfer, not even from the development side of things, like they bring in Morgan Schneiderland for over thirty eight million dollars. All of this is dollars. Sell him to Everton for twenty five. Bring in Memphis for thirty seven. Sell him for seventeen. Mkhitaryan forty six. Thirty seven going the other way. Lukaku, Alexis Sanchez being a very big one. Uh, thirty seven million pound or dollars spent on him, loaned and then a free transfer. Maron Fellaini. They it's end up losing like about twenty eight million. Uh, what's that, Graham? <laughs> It's almost like money laundering. <laughs> it's ridiculous, man. It's the only player, I believe I'm correct in saying the only player that they made a considerable sum on was Dan James, who they bought for around $20 million and then sold to Leeds for 32 uh, Aside from that, it is buying players for an absurd amount of money and then usually selling them on at some point down the road for significantly less or keeping them and not quite knowing what to do. They even paid $13 million to trigger a loan fee for Odie Nagalo, which was then billed as a free transfer. Nemanja Matic, $49 million. It's a very erratic approach to uh, acquisitions to recruitment. And then, yeah, Ryan, to your point, you then have a downturn in the academy and you lose sort of star-prized assets because it doesn't feel like they're giving academy players as much of an opportunity. They still are. They still continue to have academy players in that first-team squad and in the match day roster as they uh, have for some time. But it, it definitely does not feel like there is the level of cohesiveness and the just sort of conveyor belt of like play here we'll get you some loans then you'll come back in you'll get your opportunities and then we'll evaluate you it feels very up in the air and even a player like Marcus Rashford who breaks through from the academy under I believe Louis van Hall only does so because there are so many injuries and the squad is so threadbare that I forget who it is who pulls up injured in warm-up and they've just got to throw Rashford into a Europa League game and that to me feels more like yes he's there yes he's on the bench but at the same time he gets the opportunity because of an injury, and then he rises to the occasion. That doesn't feel planned to me. That feels yeah. very much more hand being forced. And and uh, Mourinho only threw Scott McTominay into his lineup to make a point to Paul Pogba. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then, exactly. uh, that's not what you want. <laughs> no, that doesn't seem like planning a, a, a pathway for, from the youth ranks to the first team. Everything's going great there, Graham. We can conclude that. Uh, who else have you got on this category, Graham? Yeah, so this is where I'm going to mention primarily PSG um, because funded by the Qatari Sovereign Investment Fund, the QSI, there's nothing to stop them from completely dominating 
European football. If you look at the success Man City have achieved in similar circumstances, and I know they haven't won the Champions League either, but they have become a dominant force in the much stronger Premier League. Um, and then contrast that to PSG, it doesn't look good for PSG at all. And the way I'd describe it is that City have built a team and a club like grown-ups, whereas PSG have built a team like a 10-year-old would, essentially. No thought of looking to the future. It's been a Galacticos approach. Neymar, Messi, Sergio Ramos, Mbappe, who I'd say has maybe been their, their best elite-level signing, but he's set to leave as a free agent this summer. Um, there's been no thought of structure as demonstrated throughout this season, where Pochettino has struggled to find a, a balance to his his front three and trying to balance that with the rest of the rest of his team. And I'm also going to bring in for PSG the development side of things too, because the approach I've just mentioned with PSG is made all the more wasteful when you consider how Paris is such a, a soccer hotbed. And so many of the game's best players right now have come from Paris. In fact, many of those players have come through the PSG Academy. Christopher Nkuku, Kingsley Coman, Odds Nedward, uh, Mike Mignon, the AC Milan goalkeeper, uh, Moussa Diaby, the, the Bayer Leverkusen winger. All of these players were on PSG's books, but they had to move elsewhere because their path to the first team was blocked by the Harlem Globetrotters of soccer. And it's not just that PSG could have saved some, saved themselves some money by giving these players a chance, because obviously that's not really a factor for them. It's that these, these homegrown players would have helped connect the team on the pitch to the community and to the fan base. And that connection is something that's desperately missing at PSG at the moment, as demonstrated by the, the protests that the, the ultras have been staging for the last few weeks. And I am a strong believer in when you have that connection with the fans, with the community as well, it, that has a way of manifesting itself in better uh, performances and results on the pitch. And so PSG, in so many different ways when it comes to recruitment and uh, development, have been incredibly, incredibly wasteful over the last decade or so. Graham, you mentioned a connection with the fans and the community there. That feels like a nice seg into our final category of the worst run clubs. Fan engagement. Uh, I think you mentioned last week on Soccer 101, Graham, the Fan Engagement Index, which is uh, an Mm -hmm. index in the UK which rates dialogue, governance and transparency. Transparency and shows how the so-called big six in in the Premier League compare to England's other 85 professional clubs. The highest ranking Premier League team, if, uh, if my notes serve me correct, was Man City, about halfway up the pack at 46. So Premier League teams, Graham, not doing so hot with the fan engagement, but who ranks very poorly in terms of the way they communicate to the fans, the way they make their fans feel appreciated. Yeah, so I'm going to uh, head to a Premier League club, a, a club that we've mentioned a number of, of times already. I'm going to go to uh, Newcastle United. And I think if you're going to talk about a, a lack of fan engagement being a hallmark of a poorly run club, you have to mention Newcastle United during the Mike Ashley era, as we've mentioned already. club has new owners. Um, but under Ashley, the disconnect between the, 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 the ownership, the club in general and the fans was, was something else. And I don't think we'd kind of seen that in, in the Premier League era before. Um, fans felt that the, the club lacked ambition. They spent the bare minimum for a number of years in the transfer market. They hired Ashley's mates as managers, as we've already covered. But there were, uh, there were fan revolts around just a lack of communication as well. There were protests inside the stadiums. And every time the discourse was, was ramped up, it felt like Ashley would hit back. He upped his asking price for the club time and time again, almost as a punishment for the, the fans voicing their disgruntlement. Um, as I say, there were no lines of communication between fans group and, and clubs. I think the, the, the ownership went 
um, eight years without meeting with any of the Newcastle United official supporters groups, which is quite incredible. Local journalists were banned from from press conferences whenever uh, questions were asked of the of the ownership of Ashley, and it just became a really toxic situation. And it feels like Newcastle lost about ten years of their history because of that whole situation. And even though there are ownership uh, the new owners at St. James's Park now, I think we have to mention the Ashley era when we're talking about this section. Yep, uh, Graham, and to uh, add two more points to that one when it comes to Newcastle and annoying their fans, I would say Mike Ashley coming in and changing the name of St. James's Park is a good way to start to annoy people, and then mm-hmm. the treatment of Jonas Gutierrez would be another one. Yeah. Club legend, uh, he scores the second goal and I think assists the first on the final day of the season that helps keep Newcastle up, but also was diagnosed with cancer cancer went through treatment recovers enough to be able to play is this kind of hero story and then i think after that game found finds out by overhearing a phone call with then manager john uh was it carter was that his name carver john carver thank you uh, i'm assuming on speakerphone or something like that that uh, he would not be returning jonas and that was how he found out this club legend and i think there's i think he ends up winning a like a a disability lawsuit against the club so i think uh, alienating club legends, changing the name of the stadium, bringing in his, his friends, like feuding with club legends, none of that particularly good in terms of making the fans happy. Oh, boy. Taylor, anyone else you want to put in this category? Uh, yeah, I'd say the Venkies probably haven't made uh, Blackburn mm. fans too thrilled. They still somehow own that club, but there have been protests against them for for sort of changing the identity of the club and for not truly understanding what they were getting into, what they were buying. And I think that's a common thing is when outside owners come in and buy a club and assume it's going to be their plaything that they can do with as they please. I don't think the supporters who've been there for generations tend to love that approach and tend to love that feeling of you're taking a thing that I feel connected to and just saying it's yours now you can do with as you please. I think the Venkies would be a good example of how that can kind of blow up pretty disastrously. Uh, the Venkis were or are Indian poultry magnates. Mm-hmm. Uh, the club uh, fans have protested them by letting chickens run free on the field more than once. Yeah. Um, so I think whenever there's that organized level of fan protest, and shockingly, Manchester United probably in this conversation as well. We saw that last season when their fans blocked the bus leaving the club hotel to get to the stadium. I can't remember if kickoff had to be. I think it was postponed, right? Or, or like, like they played well, another that, date. That Liverpool game got abandoned completely. Remember, the fans were on the yeah, pitch and yeah. everything. Yeah. So it, it, I think that would be another one where I, supposedly things are getting better, but I don't think they've done much to actually act on what they promised. I think that would be a, a, a pretty good indicator. And I think there's other ones in Major League Soccer of fans not feeling connected to the team or to the league and being punished for having. I would say fairly innocuous banners that happens in NWSL too, including fairly recently. So I think like dissatisfaction with ownership and with the way the owners run in the club is pretty common. And sometimes that's just because things aren't going well or the team is underperforming and that can happen. But then there's other ones that kind of ratchet that up. And Mike Ashley is a prime example of what happens when an owner seems to not really care what the people who support his club care, care or think about him and the club. Graham, uh, Taylor mentioning Major League Soccer there and the lack of fan engagement. Anyone on your list uh, fit that bill? Yeah, unfortunately, I've got a pretty depressing uh, example of one that is fairly recent involving uh, both the Portland Timbers and the Portland Thorns. 
Um, the relationship between both fan bases and the ownership of the Thorns and Timbers has, has really broken down. Recently, last fall, two former Thorns players went public with allegations of sexual misconduct from uh, coach Paul Riley. He coached the, the Thorns between, uh, between 2014 and 2015. The allegations were shocking to fans, but it emerged that the complaint had, had already been made against Riley a number of years ago in 2015. An internal investigation was launched, but uh, the Thorns and the Timbers haven't disclosed who's leading that uh, investigation and they haven't even committed to releasing the full results of it. So that is very unsatisfactory at the moment. And then you have the Andy Polo case on, on the back of this, where earlier this year the midfielder was accused of domestic abuse. And while Polo had his contract terminated when those allegations publicly surfaced, it was reported that the Timbers again knew of the the complaint much earlier against Polo, this time in May 2021. It was also reported that the Timbers did not report that complaint to the to the league. And uh, Polo's former partner said that the club urged her not to to press charges. So. Um, all pretty depressing, as as I uh, as I say, and all this has resulted in a pretty fundamental breakdown in the relationship between the the club and the fans. And while there are still investigations ongoing, and there's still a long way to run in in, in this story, it, it feels like a lot of damage has already been done to that relationship. No, no arguments at all, Graham. And I would add, uh, I can't remember if I read the transcript of the like legal representatives talking to Andy Polo's former partner or if I listen to the actual audio and it doesn't sound like as bad it's not like they're like you better not do it but it is as strong as a lawyer will say a thing so that they are not legally culpable but I think she says you know and then if you want to you can press charges and like obviously we think that would be a bad idea but it's up to you like she it's 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 everything short of saying don't do that because then you could be legally responsible for saying don't do that. But just those sort of moments, those sort of just like, it's just a a bad look to begin with, but then when it's an accumulation of events, and even going back to the Iron Front controversy when they wanted to, the supporters wanted to fly that flag and were told not to by the league and I think didn't feel particularly backed. I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction when owners just feel like they can kind of do what they want. I think it all goes back to a lack of accountability and a lack of reflecting the values that they maybe speak about publicly, speak about outwardly, but don't necessarily uh, put into place uh, in a practical way. I shall end this section, gents, with a tale of two Norwegian businessmen called Rocket and Gjelsten, who came to London in the late 90s. They tried to buy a team called Chelsea. They could not buy that team. They went a couple miles down the street and bought a team called Wimbledon FC. Um, tried to move that team to Dublin, Ireland and failed to do so. Not consulting fans at any point during that process. Then subsequently tried and succeeded in moving them to Milton Keynes, a made-up town about 60 miles north of <laughs> London. Um, killing a team that was in the Premier League had a great history and not consulting fans at any stage during that process. So I just thought I'd mention that one just to uh, to round out the pod talking about the worst. For once, I think that is a valid mention of Wimbledon. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And still owners of Mulder, I believe, in Norway, uh, the, the club they had in Norway. Um, Ryan, how, yeah. how weird is it for you when uh, NFL or just American sports teams change cities? Because I, w- I will say you're speaking about your experience and talking about it in, in fairly emotional ways about what it what that club meant to you, how it felt when they were sort of ripped away, how it felt when they came back. 
it does make me look at American sports through a different lens, and I tend to see it as I think I used to just be like, yeah, that's what happens. They move and then they move back or they don't. Who knows? And now I see it more as like just like that's what they want us to think, man. They want us to think it's not a big deal. Whereas I'm pretty sure people in the city where they left or Wimbledon fans definitely felt that one pretty personally. Yeah, I I can't imagine Chelsea ever being moved to Scotland or yeah. something like that. You know, a, a big geographical move like that for a bigger team who have a bigger fan base who could basically... I, do you know what? I don't think the Wimbledon move would have happened in the social media age because we've seen things happen. Millwall, they tried to move their stadium recently and basically social media shut it down. They're a relatively small South London team. Uh, if what happened back in t- uh, the early 2000s happened today, it simply wouldn't have gone down. That's my long-held belief uh, because of the power of social media. But in terms of the, the American landscape, Taylor, you know, is franchising and moving teams around is a lot more common. Like, I, I was in the States when the Rams moved uh, back from St. Louis back to Los Angeles, and I was really shocked. And you saw, you saw some news reports of people in St. Louis being angry about it, but I don't, I don't know. It, it, maybe there's a different relationship with, with European teams. There certainly is, I feel, with my team that got yeah. murdered. No, I think there is, and I think there's a, just a different way that we talk about teams because I think of it – it's like, for lack of a better way of putting it, like it's a little bit victim blaming the way we talk about teams that when St. Louis, yeah, when they leave, when the Rams leave and move to LA, the narrative in my mind was all like, well, yeah, you know, their attendance and you never know how much success you're going to have. It's a bigger market. Like, yeah, of course, you got to make that move. And it just feels very like if you guys wanted them, maybe you should have been Los Angeles. And it's just like, I don't know if that's how we should really be seeing these things. Cause if anything, mm. it really does just continue the idea that it is. The owner who makes the decisions and if they want to move cities, they're going to. And the people who've rooted for that team or club for a very long time don't matter as much in the grand scheme of things. And I think that makes us feel less connected and like the thing we care about them, like maybe not the most, but one of the things we care about the most matters the least to some people. And I think that's Mm. just an odd feeling. So I'm glad we're doing this episode, but I like celebrating the teams, the players, the individuals who make the right decisions, who do things the right way. Absolutely, Taylor. And leading on from that, if we're going to look at the worst run clubs and the elements therein, and we've looked at the categories we've considered today, ownership, the expectation versus reality, the management, the recruitment and development, and the fan engagement, it seems like the the, sec- the, the last four categories are all subsets of that first one, the ownership. Because yep. the buck stops with the owner, does it not? The person who holds the keys, the person who makes all the key decisions, everything else is subservient to the ownership or the ownership group's whims. So when we're looking at a badly run club, Taylor, ultimately we have to look at the person or people at the very top of the pyramid. Yeah, no arguments here. And I think that's also why Graham spotlighting Barcelona is such a good point because it can be the owner, but it can also be the person who's elected to oversee the club. But if they have grandiose ideas for how things need to happen and they're the only one that can make them happen, That doesn't necessarily – sometimes that can be good when you have this clarity of vision, but oftentimes it can end up with the club being massively in debt and having to let one of their best players ever leave on a free. Woof. Graham, uh, we are both co-owners of soccer teams these days. We are. Uh, We can be glad we'll never appear on a podcast like this in terms of worst owners. Right? 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 Uh, I mean, last week there was a town hall meeting in Stirling about the direction of the club and how everyone is really unhappy about that. But yeah, sure. I've got a certificate that says I own part of the club, yeah. And Wimbledon haven't won a game in two months. Wonderful times all (laughs) round, Graham. All right. I think that just about does this episode of Soccer 101. Thank you very much for joining us on this one, listener. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for you as always. Right back at you, my friend. Graham Rutherford, a pleasure. 
Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Listener, we'll be back on the feed next time with another Soccer One. 101. 111101. But for now, catch you later. 